Section 16 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 5, Part 1. Conrad Althaus's suit to Lily. The Easter foot-washing. I meet Tilling again and receive him at my own house. A disappointing interview. Tilling announces his departure for Vienna. A conversation about war. I invite him to a last interview, which is interrupted by my father. A ride in the Prater. We understand each other at last. Three weeks had passed. Conrad Althaus had proposed for my sister Lily and met with a refusal but he did not take the matter much to heart, and remained a zealous visitor at our house and hovered about us in the drawing-rooms of our society. I expressed to him once my admiration for his unshaken fidelity to his slavery. "'I am very glad,' I said, "'that you are not angry, but it is a proof to me that your feeling for Lily was not so ardent after all as you pretend, for rejected love is wont to be angry and resentful.' "'You are mistaken, my respected Mrs. Cousin. I love Lily to distraction. At first I believed that my heart belonged to you, but you held yourself so aloof and were so cold that I stifled my budding passion in good time, and then for a time I was interested in Rosa. But at last I fixed my affection on Lily, and to this affection I will now remain true to the end of my life.' "'Ah, oh, that is very like you.' "'Lily, or no one.' "'But as she will not have you, my poor Conrad.' "'Do you think I am the first one who's been met by a refusal, "'and has gone back to the same lady a second and a third time, "'and has been accepted at the fourth offer, just to stop his importunity? "'Lily has not fallen in love with me, "'which is a matter not easily to be accounted for, but is still a fact.' that under these circumstances she should have resisted the temptation which for so many maidens is irresistible to become a wife, and would not accept an offer which in a worldly point of view would be a desirable one, that seems to me most good in her, and I am more in love with her than ever. Gradually my devotion will touch her and awaken a return of love, and then, dearest Martha, you will become my sister-in-law." I hope you will not go against me. I, oh no, on the contrary, your system of perseverance pleases me. With time and the exhibition of tenderness, one can always succeed in wooing and winning, as the English call it. But as to minnen und gewinnen, our young gentlemen seem hardly disposed to take the necessary trouble. They want not to strive after and gain their happiness, but to pluck it without any trouble, like some wayside flower. In a fortnight Tilling was back in Vienna, as I heard, and yet he did not come to my house. I could not, of course, expect to meet him in people's drawing-rooms, since his bereavement kept him away from all society. Still, I had hoped that he would have come, or at least written to me, but one day after another passed, and did not bring the expected visit or letter. "'I cannot think, Martha, what has come to you,' said Aunt Mary to me one morning. "'For some time you have been so out of humour, so distrait, so—I don't know what to call it. 
You are very wrong not to lend an ear to any of your suitors. This solitary existence, as I have said from the very first, is not good for you. The consequence of it is these low spirits which distinguish you just now. Have you quite forgotten your Easter devotions? They would help to do you good. I think that both things, I mean both marrying and going to confession, should be done for love of the thing itself, not as a remedy for low spirits. None of my suitors please me, and as for confession, well, it is high time for that. Tomorrow is Maundy Thursday. Have you tickets for the foot-washing? Yes, Papa has sent me some, but I really do not know whether I shall go. Oh, but you must. There is nothing more beautiful and more elevating than this ceremony, the triumph of Christian humility, the emperor and empress prostrating themselves to the earth to wash the feet of poor men and women in their service. Does not that symbolize well how small and insignificant is earthly majesty before the heavenly? In order to represent humility symbolically by kneeling down, one must feel oneself to be really a very exalted personage. It means what God's Son was in comparison with the apostles, I, the emperor, am in comparison with these poor folks. This fundamental motive in the ceremony does not strike me as peculiarly humble. What curious notions you have, Martha! In these three years that you have passed in solitude in the country, and in the perusal of wicked books, your ideas have become so perverted. Wicked books? Yes, wicked. I maintain that the word is correct. The other day, when in my innocence I spoke to the archbishop about the book I had seen on your table, and which from its title I took for a religious work, The Life of Jesus, by one Strauss, why, he smote his hands together above his head and cried out, Merciful heaven, how came you by such a profligate work? I turned as red as fire, and assured him that I had not read the book myself, but had only seen it at her relations. Then demand of your relation, as she values her salvation, to throw this book into the fire. And that I do now, Martha. Will you burn the book? If we were two or three centuries earlier, we might have watched not the book, but the author going to the flames. That would have been more effectual, more effectual for the time, though not for long. You give me no answer. Will you burn this book? No. What? Nothing but no? Why should we have any long talk about it? We do not yet understand each other in these matters, dear auntie. Let me rather tell you what little Rudolph yesterday— And thus the conversation was happily led off to another and a fruitful subject, in which no difference of opinion came in between us, for we both agreed on this matter, that Rudolf Dotsky was the dearest, the most original, and for his age, the most advanced child in the world. Next day I resolved nevertheless to attend the foot-washing. A little after ten, in black clothes as beseems Passion Week, my sister Rosa and I presented ourselves in the great hall of state in the burg. On a scaffold there, places were reserved for members of the aristocracy and of the diplomatic corps. Thus one was again in one's own set, and greetings were exchanged left and right. The gallery, too, was closely packed, also with persons selected, and who had got cards of admission, but still a little mixed not belonging only to the creme, as we were on our scaffold. 
In short, the old caste separations and privileges to correspond with this fate of symbolical humility. I do not know whether the others were in a mood of religious devotion, but I awaited what was coming with just the same feeling with which one looks forward in the theatre to a promised spectacle. Just as there, after exchanging salutations from box to box, one looks with excitement for the rise of the curtain, so I was looking in the direction in which the chorus and soloists in the show before me were to appear. The whole scene was already set, especially the long table at which the twelve old men and twelve old women had to seat themselves. Still, I was glad I had come, for I felt excited, and this is always a pleasant feeling, and one which delivers one from troublous thoughts for the moment. My trouble was constantly, why does not Tilling show himself? Just now this fixed idea had left me. What I was expecting and wishing to see was the imperial and the humble actors in the fate before me. And exactly at that moment, when I was not thinking of him, my eyes fell on Tilling. The mass was just over. The dignitaries of the court had just entered the hall, followed by the general staff and the corps of officers, and I was letting my gaze wander unconcernedly over all these persons in uniform, who were not the chief actors, but only intended to fill the stage, when suddenly I recognized Tilling, who had taken his position just opposite our seat. It ran through me like an electric shock. He was not looking our way. His look showed traces of the suffering he had gone through during the last few weeks. An expression of deep sorrow rested on his features. How gladly would I have shown my sympathy with him by a silent warm pressure of the hand. I kept my gaze firmly fixed on him, hoping that by this magnetic power I might compel him to look in my way too, but in vain. "'They are coming! They are coming!' cried Rosa, nudging me. "'Only look! How beautiful! What a picture!' It was the old men and women, clothed in the old German costume, who were now introduced. The youngest of the women, so said the newspapers, was eighty-eight years old, the youngest of the men, eighty-five. Wrinkled, toothless, bowed, I could not see really the point of Rosa's how beautiful— what pleased me, however, was the costume. This was peculiar and excellently suited to the whole ceremony, so penetrated with the spirit of the Middle Ages. The anachronism in this respect was ourselves. In our modern clothes and with our modern notions, we did not harmonize with the picture. After the twenty-four old people had taken their seats at the table, a number of gentlemen— mostly elderly bedizened with gold sticks and orders, came into the hall. The privy councillors and chamberlains, many countenances of our acquaintance, Mr. To be sure, among the rest were there. Lastly followed the priests, who had to officiate in the solemn rite. So now the march of the supernumeraries into the hall was over, and the expectation of the public rose to the highest pitch of excitement. My eyes, however, were not so closely fixed as those of the other spectators in that direction from which the court was to come, but kept always turning back to Tilling. The latter had at last looked my way and recognized me. He saluted me. End of section 16